Greetings friends, my name is Weston Nakamura from Blockworks Macro in Tokyo, which are Asian markets close, and welcome to the Market Depth Podcast, bringing you global market commentary and analysis from the Asia-Pacific trading session so that you know what happened overnight. Now, it's not exactly Asian markets close today, right now, because there really wasn't an Asian markets open today, okay, because Japan markets were closed for holiday, and then Hong Kong Exchange um, had suspended trading, it was closed for trading um, for the entire day due to inclement weather. They basically, there was a typhoon close for trading okay this happens every now and then in in hong kong so as i go through china data china's gdp miss retail sales miss industrial production beat fixed asset investment miss and youth unemployment now above 21 percent we're going to run through the data the price action on currencies and commodities and then i'm going to break down the mechanics of wall street economists and why they cannot get this china call right for the life of them okay but as I do all that, just need you to keep in mind, especially in terms of price action discussions, that Hong Kong and Japan markets were closed today, okay? And the reason that that matters is because, first of all, for obvious reasons for the equity market, Hong Kong being closed, which means that you don't have the direct, you know, China link equity market reaction to any of this data that's that would otherwise be there. And then you also don't have Japan uh, as the representative developed market, Asia representative, thereby reflecting DM equity market reactions and all that, okay? That also means that U.S. cash treasury markets also aren't trading during US, uh, during Asia hours, during Asia data releases, um, not until Europe comes in later in the day. Japanese investors are major players in terms of market impact capabilities and activity in global fixed income as well as fx okay so them being absent from the market means that we therefore didn't get a real full market read and reaction to china's data that came out today and perhaps that may come tomorrow all else equal perhaps it won't come at all because as i have been saying the Data releases that are, you know, coming in to the downside on China are not market moving anymore and haven't been for some time. Either way, all things to keep in mind throughout the duration of this episode. Before I do that, let me just blow through the other data points that came through. So we have industrial production that actually came in stronger than expected. It was up 4.4%. Um, and that was up from the 3.5% previous reading in, re in May. And obviously... That was brushed aside and not seen as some sort of like bottom turning point for the Chinese economy. So that really didn't matter much at all. Then we have total fixed asset investments up 3.8% year over year to 24.3 trillion yuan for the first half of the year. And so the breakdown within this fixed asset investment actually shows like how China's economy is sort of rebalancing, if you will. Okay. Because you have infrastructure investment that's up 7.2%. You have manufacturing investment that's up 6%. But you have real estate development that's down 7.9%. Okay, That's the shift away from relying on leveraged property-driven growth and you know more towards consumption um, and manufacturing that's uh, being attempted currently. Um, finding difficulty in doing so. But nonetheless, that's what that would reflect. And then youth unemployment hits another record high at 21.3% for a third consecutive month above 20%. And it looks like we're going to get a record 12 million, million graduates from college this year to add to that one-fifth jobless rate for 20, 16 to 24-year-olds. Now, what I will say is that of all of the data that I just kind of went through, including GDP, this is actually the most relevant in terms of the immediate-term market price action. 
um, relative to the other data releases for the day. And why is that? It's because this is, first of all, it's obviously a massive problem to have a 20-something percent youth unemployment rate um, for obvious reasons, you know, long-term growth and all that kind of thing. But the reason I'm saying that this is most market relevant um, is because it can drive policy or at least make market-moving policy signaling in the immediate. And in fact, that is what has been happening. So last week, the Hang Seng tech sector rallied 10% uh, on the week, and that lifted the broader Hang Seng, uh, Hang Seng index up for a massively strong week. Okay, Why did big tech rally in China? Because you had a series of actions from the top officials um, and regulators. Things like, you know, Ant Financial getting fined a billion dollars, which is basically being interpreted as the end of the tech crackdown. And then more significantly, you have Premier Lee meeting with executives of all these mega tech platform companies for offering so-called like support of the platform economy. Um, and why? Well, many reasons, one of which is obviously to try and recapture that growth and innovation and, you know, attract investment and all that, that these Chinese tech behemoths were once upon a time thriving at doing until Beijing decided to crack down um, with various regulatory hammers in 2021 and basically just outright outright destroyed trillions in, you know, in value as well as just smashed pure sentiment within the sector, if not the entire region uh, to invest in. So tech sector that was, you know, it was once reliably an employer of young talent graduating out of you know college but it no longer could go on this like hiring sprees for new grads who were trying to enter the tech sector uh, china's youth unemployment was already fairly high before this it was hovering in the, like the low to mid teen percentages for unemployed meanwhile national employment was less than half of that it was at like five percent and change but Ever since that regulatory crackdown began in 2021, that's when you saw youth unemployment in China surge into the 20% levels. So if this is a China policy-induced issue, then it is also a China policy-fixable matter by simply reversing or lightening up on the regulatory hammering, or so they think. And so that's why, in large part, you had Premier Li pledge this support, whatever that means, to these tech executives last week, and why you saw the Hang Seng tech sector on fire last week, arguably with some even some spillover um, to, to U.S. tech. And he did this in part to try and get this youth unemployment thing under control, all right, in part. But nonetheless, this is why, you know, I'm saying that in my view, this is, of all the other data points that were released today, relatively speaking, this is the most market-relevant macro data point in the immediate, and perhaps it might be going forward. Will that directly result in youth unemployment to drop back below 20%? No. Okay. Will it help with a more services-oriented 16- to 24-year-old population? Maybe. Yeah, I guess. Who knows? I don't know. But botched regulatory policies on the tech sector, along with like zero COVID policies, this is what did this to China's youth and youth unemployment. And China's youth unemployment has been and still is therefore directionally aligned with the Hang Seng Tech Index through the policy lens, both the upside and to the downside. All right. All right. So that's it for the data front. So let's talk market price action because this is what else happened and that actually matters directly to markets more so than any data point ever would. And that would be PBOC's market, market operations for the day. Okay. So 
This is a chart of dollar CNH intraday inverse. So at 9.15 a.m., okay, well before any data came out, they, the PBOC does their daily yuan fixing, and it is 60 pips stronger than expectations. So it's stronger, yet again, but it's not as stretched as like the 100, 200, and 300 pips stronger um, than expectations that we've seen as of recent. Additionally, the PBOC conducts, um, conducted a seven-day reverse repo operation that injected about 33 billion yuan into the market. Okay, so that's another liquidity injection to follow the previous two operations in which they've now seemingly returned back to liquidity injections rather than the two weeks of liquidity withdrawals on seven-day reverse repo. Okay, so that's a kind of a trend turn to note, right? We have less strong yuan fixings and net liquidity injections happening as of late, okay? Now... At 9.30 a.m. local time, the PVOC conducts 103 billion yuan of a one-year MLF, medium-term lending facility, 100 billion of which was expiring loans. And so they've taken that and they've rolled that over um, and they've done it at a recently lowered 10 basis point lower rate of 2.65%. All right. And so that leaves a net 3 billion RMB in additional liquidity injections for this one-year MLF operation for the month. Okay, now I made this chart of one-year MLF op uh, monthly net injections or withdrawals um, of liquidity over the past year. And as you can see, today's like 3 billion yuan is the smallest amount of liquidity injection that they've done since they began doing net injections as of the you know last half year. Um, it's more or less like a meaningless amount, right? To roll over 100 billion and then add 3 billion more? Like, is that necessary? Like, I'm not asking sarcastically. Like, is that, is that literally, is that all that's necessary due to a lack of demand or, or you know, need for liquidity and, and financing, right? Or is it like, signaling um, and if so what to make of that signal okay um, here is the same chart that I made I kind of sloppily overlaid dollar CNY on top of it I sort of misaligned in doing so on the left hand side but the broader read is if there is one it looks to be you know like sustained liquidity withdrawals um, on one year MLF it, on consecutive months happening in size during 2022, that helped to you know potentially arrest the USD upside and yuan fall you know that was occurring over several months last year. And when MLF liquidity flips to a trend of net injections of basically liquidity you know adding liquidity, then the yuan seems to weaken and the dollar seems to strengthen. Okay. Or completely, these are completely unrelated and they have nothing to do with each other and they're barely even coincidental. And that's probably likely scenario. Um, but I figured I'll just show that. Either way, this 3 billion amount is a mystery to me. I really need someone who truly knows the nuances of how the tool is used at what given you know, market and economic and political backdrop and all that. And I don't think that there is anyone really out there because of the fact that we just have this kind of leadership reshuffle that occurred. But strictly markets-wise, I guess we can, you know, can we call it a hawkish liquidity? Can we call it targeted non-excessive stimulus? Can we call it like a rounding error? I don't know. But either way, that took place at 9.30 a.m. when 
the Hang Seng Cash Index would normally open for trading, for market on open, if not for the fact that the Hong Kong Exchange canceled trading for the day due to this typhoon. China mainland stocks, you know, did open, you know, as as per schedule at 9.30. But notably, this is when the yuan establishes its, like, directional decisive move for the day. Which direction is going to move for the day? And that would be yuan weakness against the dollar that is resuming once again. And so that happened upon the PBOC one-year MLF operation. And then at 11 a.m., that's when the China data release, you know, all comes out at once. GDP, retail sales, industrial production, fixed asset investment, unemployment rate, all that, right? And as you can see, there was no market reaction as far as the currency is concerned. Like, there's no market reaction to any of those, right? Surprise, surprise, yet again. Hence me not caring about this, like, about data releases to the downside in, in out of China for the past God knows how long now, okay? This is a liquid DM proxy currency for CNH or for China activity, which is also an Asia-Pacific regional that is fully open for trading, and that would be the Aussie dollar. Upon the PBOC MLF operation, and then subsequently on the China data releases, and seems that AUD did seem to have more impact from the China data releases, which would make more sense in terms of, you know, what markets are reacting to what. Um, but also, let's remember that AUD also had, like, a very ripping rally, upside rally last week. And so short-term profit-taking for, you know, kind of quick traders would be warranted. And then here's my go-to. Dollar yuan versus copper futures. Copper got crushed today. Perhaps on the China data reaction, but again, like, it was already on its downside, as you can see. It's not like it reversed course um, upon the China data release, right? Um, so, if anything, at best, I would say that it, you know, the China data just kind of exacerbated an existing directional downside move on copper, right? So, don't like listen to people when they say like the China data crushed copper. Um, and then, if you look here. The sharpest move for today's Asia session was at the close. This is hours after anything China data release related, you know, came out. And what this looks like is just momentum downside as Aussie traders hand off the trading session to, you know, London and LME commodities traders coming in. Okay. Uh, And as for context, Copper, like I just said, had quite a rally in line with the yuan turning around last week and the dollar dropping last week, uh, potentially an overdone rally, um, and now turning around to give back those gains, seemingly, as quickly as it acquired them. Look out below, Copper. It seems like there's a bit more to go in the immediate. Um, and then that uh, this white line here on this chart, those are E-minis, S&P E-minis, and they still don't care. Um, and neither does dollar yen care about China data or the MLF for that matter either. Dollar yen was not only flat throughout the entire trading session, dollar yen resumed yen strength and dollar weakness trend into the end of the session, as you can see it fall off, right? Which is not what dollar CNH did. And what that shows is that the yuan was indeed weakening rather than a broad-based dollar restrengthening after last week's dollar sell-off that was that's underway okay that's why i have dollar yen here in comparison to see if any cnh move um on china data or otherwise during the asia session 
um, absent Japan participants is actually to see if it's USD up or if it's CNH down driven. And it seems to be that it is the letter. Um, again, just for context, here is dollar yuan and dollar yen on a same percent scale month to date. And you can clearly see that the dollar is selling off and the yen is, Japanese yen is strengthening far more then the yuan is strengthening against a dollar sell-off, as I discussed at length last week. And yes, Japanese short covering triggered upside um, for the yen, but it all, but that also that yen move also leads, if not kickstarts and fuels, the China yuan directional pivot to the upside, pivot away from its like weakening trend that's been you know happening all, all year. Um, and for the you want to finally find a floor, um, and none of this it could very well may have not occurred if not for the yen to start like short squeezing and pulling USD down in the first place. Okay, and here are the two from June when the dollar just really went parabolic versus both of them. Obviously, far more pronounced um, the yen um, to either direction to the upside and to the downside um, because unlike the Chinese yuan, which has a daily price fixing range established by authorities to intervene daily, the yen that only has authorities intervene on average twice a year so far. Gotta love price discovery. Okay. Um, and by the way, I'm obviously being very sarcastic. Um, the, the yen is not the <laughs> the yen is as a free market price discovery floating, especially around north of 140. Um, as as any managed currency is. How sad. All right. Um, finally, here's dollar yen versus dollar yuan year to date. Yen is getting far more crushed. All right. So that's it for price action, market price action. All right. So just to finish up here, this is what I want to do. I want to talk about why the GDP print was so bad in China, 6.3% GDP print. And I also want to talk about Wall Street analysts and economists and why they can't, for the life of them, seem to get this, like, China downside call right in consensus, all right? So, first and foremost, here is GDP once again. 6.3% was what the, uh, what the rate came in as. And let's remember also that these are China's reported GDP figures. Which they know that we know that they're not, let's say, by the books. Um, not that other developed economies' official figures are either, and not that China's GDP is more so like quote unquote guidance than it is like a record. But these are the figures with, let's just call them optimistic characteristics. All right. Now, I am not talking about the quarter over quarter rate where you see a sh pretty sharp drop from, you know, um, 2.2 previous to 0.8%. But I know that this is the, the QOQ figure is what was more in focus um, for the GDP release today. But I'm not talking about that. Uh, I am talking about the year-over-year -year figure, okay? So 6.3% year-over-year annualized growth figure. That, that actually sounds kind of spectacular, right? Even when compared with China's own 5% full-year target for this year, right? But it's all about base effects, okay? So what is this percentage change comping off of, comparing off of, right? And so this is the growth comparison from this time last year, you know, Q2 2022, 
right? And in Q2 of 2022, GDP came in at 0.4%. Yes, that's a zero handle on a Chinese GDP figure. That was the second worst reading on record for China. And why did China basically have close to zero growth for the second quarter of 2022? Because that was in the thick of China's zero COVID policy. The total city, citywide lockdowns that then hit like the financial and commercial metropolis of Shanghai, 25 million population, a city with its own stock exchange, home to over a thousand billionaires, at least to start the year, but not to end the year. Shanghai is the most internationally commercial city in mainland China. They shut that down, okay? Which is still just an insane thing to think about that having had occurred. And so, just to show you what a 0.4% GDP due to shutting down vital cities like Shanghai looks like, take a look at this from May of last year, 2022, okay? May 16, 2022, from Bloomberg. Not a single car was sold in Shanghai for the month. Zero. Okay? And so, at that time of zero COVID lockdowns, that's the China that we're basing today's year-over-year GDP growth percentage off of. All right? So, with that said, in comparison to today's Q2 GDP, this is a fundamentally opposite economic scenario right like what zero covid lockdown right that was dumped and forgotten about faster than uh you know modern day pboc governor too soon too soon while a 6.3 percent print standalone might look good just by itself once you put it in the context of base effects and what we're copying off of you can now see why 6.3% GDP print is not only not an impressive growth figure, but even the 7.3 consensus estimate figure would have seemed like, you know, been on the conservative side and that could have been easily met. But meet, it did not. As the official 6.3% came in one full percent below the 7.3% expectations. And the reason I mentioned things like zero cars sold and all that is because retail sales and general consumer strength or weakness, that was by and large what was behind this big overall miss, okay? Okay, so now time for my Wall Street rant, all right? And why it is that Wall Street cannot get this China call right and why they are seemingly just, you know, like they're so, they're so very wrong in, in the face of obvious evidence. All right, let me explain how this basically works. So you have basically a 6.3% GDP missed the downside. Okay, so on the back of that, we saw an immediate round of downward readjustments to Wall Street full-year growth estimates for the year. Okay, JP Morgan, Citi, Morgan Stanley, Sachin, BNP Paribas, probably a few others as well. They all cut their uh, China full-year GDP down to 5%. All right. Here's a thing that's like different this time, if you will, or different from the first half of this year regarding Wall Street projections and outlooks. So we all know the near unanimous bull call on, you know, the China reopening trade going into the year, which, as we all know and have known for some time now, that that was just very, very wrong. OK, but these people, they maintain their overall view um, of being bullish, right, um, in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. You know, through every kind of data release, time and time again, month after month after month, right? Why? 
why do they not change their outlook when they're clearly wrong, right? Well, there's two general reasons why a high-profile Wall Street economist who covers a major black box region like China would not change their outlook in the face of obviously being wrong. There's two general reasons why a high-profile Wall Street economist who covers a major region in focus like China, especially given that it's a relative black box, right, and so their analysis is in demand, there's two basic general reasons why they won't change their view in the face of overwhelming evidence to do so. Number one is just pure, simple stupidity, ignorance, and arrogance, okay, i.e., they truly believe in their view, okay? And then the second reason is that they don't actually believe in their own view deep down inside, but they cannot just toss toss it away. This is their big conviction research call. Um, they, you can't just ditch that within months or even like, you know, quarters um, of the exact opposite reality playing out. And the reason is due to personal career risk management, Okay, that is the second one. All right. So on that second one, if you just published a 50 page PDF with your company logo stamped on the cover page using every resources, the resource that you have at your disposal, by which I mean the human capital of your inferiors at your firm, um, and then you publish this whole like, you know, 2023 market outlook conviction call bull china blah 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 blah. and you sent that out there to every single one of your institutional investor clients out there hedge funds pension funds other central banks are going to read this academics everybody's going to read this right everyone knows that and then you also have your face on like financial media bloomberg uh cnbc whatever telling your story pounding the table and all that you cannot then just toss that view in the shredder as if it never happened Okay, because if you do that, then either that either means that you were wrong to start and then you're right currently about this, you know, on your about face or you're wrong currently um, to do an about face and you were actually correct all along um, if just given enough time within certain reasonable statute of limitations of time. Okay, you don't have forever to do this. And at the end of the day, look. If you're a sell-side economist, you are not in the business of being right. You're in the business of not being wrong. Okay? I'm going to repeat that. You are not in the business of being correct. You are in the business of not being incorrect. So, you can either risk being wrong once by maintaining your view, right? Or you can risk being wrong twice if you change your view and then that doesn't play out or you can cement your yourself being wrong once by by flipping right which basically makes your redo mulligan call and you know overall credibility worthless anyway even if this 180 flip new view ends up being subsequently correct okay now this may be what's happening with this like very slow consensus pivot of becoming less bullish on China, you know, at some of the Wall Street houses. But for most of them, by and large, the reason for the very late and still behind pivoting on China, it's not career risk management. Instead, it's actually the first reason I mentioned. It's stupidity, ignorance, and arrogance. Okay, 
the banks that I just mentioned, who just cut the their China full year 2023 GDP forecast down to 5% in the last 24 hours following the Q2 China GDP release, okay? JP Morgan, Citi, Morgan Stanley. These are the exact same banks and personnel, and then some, that had all raised their already full-year GDP bullish forecasts upon the previous April release of China's Q1 GDP 2023 that came in above expectations. So just rewind back to April 18th of this year, 2023, just what, four months ago. Q1 GDP for uh, China, official Q1 GDP comes in at 4.5%. And so that beats the 4% consensus. And now later that very day, the following actions on Wall Street happened. JP Morgan raised their forecasts from 6% originally to 6.4%. Citi raised their forecast from 5.7% to 6.1%. All right, so that's two banks with a six-handle GDP growth for China for this year. Morgan Stanley kept their full-year forecast at 5.7, but they said that, quote, risks facing our full-year GDP forecast of 5.7% is now skewed to the upside given a strong entry. And then UBS also raised from 54 to 5.7% saying, quote, given the stronger than expected recovery in Q1 2023, driven by both a robust rebound in consumption and in property. All right. So basically in April, JP Morgan was calling for full year GDP 6.4%, Citi 6.1%, Morgan Stanley at 5.7%, and all of them looking for risks to the upside. Just one quarter later today, They've all slashed down to 5%, and they've been making incremental cuts all the way on the way down, right, in between that time, as you can see here. Oh, that is not career risk management and, like, knowing in your heart that these aren't the figures. They believe in their figures, right? They're, that's them going even further in the wrong direction and then having to backtrack, i.e. stupidity, ignorance, and arrogance, Okay. And so that's why you see these very slow pivots occurring in these outlooks and these like, you know, these figures and these forecasts that are changing, right? And by the way, yes, I am taking into account this notion of peddling the Chinese Communist Party line and not pissing off Chinese officials and to stay in their good graces for market access and all of that right? In the pursuit of profits. Yeah, while some of that might be going on, there's two things I'll say about that. First is simply, those sorts of things are more so an effort in avoiding being negative towards China, right? Like what we're talking about is correcting a self-induced like overexcitement, right? China didn't force these banks like JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and City to make ridiculously over bullish 6.7% GDP call, which is a full 1.7% above China's own target forecast heading into the year for which they're now, you know, bringing back down. Like that's that's not China twisting arms. Again, that's that they did that on their own. The banks did that. That's stupidity, ignorance and arrogance um on display. And then the second point on this is that 
I don't think that this CCP coercion thing is as much of an influence on banks like economists maintaining their overly inflated GDP projections falsely or whatever and their outlooks, you know, being bullish. Like, I don't think that that kind of coercion thing, force, is at work as one might think, all right? And here's why I'll say that, and this is just one example. But if you've been following this story developing over the last few weeks, if not days, so Goldman, who, by the way, Goldman has an above uh, consensus 5.4% full-year growth target for China for this year, 5.4%. The rest of them are now at 5 So a Goldman analyst um, recently downgraded China's bank stocks, and by which I mean Goldman put sell ratings on the the big state-owned banks like ICBC, whose shares then subsequently got crushed like 15%. And the analyst downgrade, you know, to sell rating, this is based on basically Goldman calling out China's banks' exposures to the amount, like the leverage um, that they have in the property sector, and how it'll just basically it'll be the banks that will eventually end up being the ones holding the bag on non-performing loans, and then they'll be forced to cut dividends, and so therefore Goldman cuts the China banks and state-owned banks to sell. Um, because of their inescapable exposure to the property sector, an imploding property sector. So this isn't just a call on bank stocks. This is a state policy outlook that they've made and a negative take at that in which they did so for them to make this downgrade Chinese banks to, to sell rating, okay? And it seems that Goldman actually might be onto something because as soon as they published these sell ratings, right, and they put them out there, Goldman started to get immediate backlash, but not initially from the Chinese banks themselves, the ones who are being downgraded in the Goldman analyst report, right? But rather, the first and immediate ones to speak up the backlash came from Chinese state media, and then since then, the Chinese banks, you know, who got downgraded themselves started voicing their opposition. Um, but the, f- the first to come out and immediately came out was Chinese state media. Um, and w- what, like, what the hell does that Chinese state media have anything to do? What, what do they care what Goldman, you know, uh, analysts rates the, the Chinese bank stocks unless they're actually onto something, unless Goldman is actually not only just calling them out on what they're going to be doing and what they're trying to do, but saying that it's going to fail and that therefore these banks are these are cells and and also the, the goldman uh analyst at least thus far is yet to retract anything in terms of like you know the analyst research downgrade call on these chinese chinese banks okay and again following the q2 gdp print this most recent print from you know from earlier goldman actually kept their 2023 full year forecast at 5.4 percent they cut back their Q3 forecast for the quarter that we're currently in from 6.5% to 5.5% quarter over quarter. That's a different department at Goldman, but it's Goldman nonetheless, right? So you still have a super bullish, you know, like bigger picture China macro call on GDP um, out of Goldman. And at the same time, you have Goldman who is th- like destroying their potential to do business in China. 
um, as we speak, they're putting sell ratings on their banks. So again, but this is why I don't think that it's just like CCP coercion based bullish Wall Street GDP forecasting on China um, as as it is just pure and simple. Once again, stupidity, ignorance and arrogance. All right. So now where are we with these clowns? And so currently, right now that everyone has now just accepted, finally accepted that like China's growth is not happening. Now it's just about stimulus talk, right? And so the next big catalyst is now centered around China's July Politburo meeting amongst all of like the Wall Street banks and forecasters and economists. Okay, the the July Politburo meeting is that's where we're gonna get more clarity on stimulus or no stimulus. But either way, it's going to be revealed. And so now the arguments and disagreements, bank to bank, differences, whatever, is what policy response will come out of you know this July Politburo meeting or what won't come out, will it be enough, so on and so forth, right? Now, look, I have absolutely zero idea what a handful of CCP dudes are going to do or not do, nor what they wish to do, nor whether if said wishes are in conflict with other priorities nor how much divide there there is behind closed doors and you know ex Xi Jinping but here's what I will what I will say I think that one major blind spot that Wall Street is overlooking currently as a risk is a risk that they're creating for themselves out of thin air first of all okay and it's not about what kind of stimulus will or won't come out of the July Politburo meetings to be held between July 28th and July 30th. Rather, the potential path and possibility that's not being considered is that there will be anything communicated at all in the first place out of the Politburo meetings, regardless of what the content of the message is or the policy is or the policy that doesn't exist is. So here's what I mean. Back in March of this year, Bloomberg wrote an article about how Xi Jinping has become just incredibly like less transparent and communicative on Paul Beer meeting readouts, right? Um, and not just that they no longer give any like info of use on what the topic of discussions generally were, but that they weren't even being released at all in the first place. All right. Um, like they note how since October 2022, when Xi Jinping secured his like ruler for life position, there have been, already been three meetings in which they haven't released any readout or minutes from Paul Viewer meetings. Um, and and when they do, they're just incredibly short, like in, in the length, and they say nothing of any general substance at all. So look, I don't care what the arguments and differences between the clowns at the china macro team at city or bnb Paribas or wherever whatever are quibbling about but with their honestly their outright random guessing of 10 basis point cuts to you know the triple r rate in in q3 or whatever it is that they're saying right they're currently all awaiting a moment of clarity that might as well be a, you know a one-liner of like things were discussed or not even come at all, for that matter. But either way, I seriously doubt that there will be, like, policy direction clarity coming at the end of this month with the July Politburo meeting. 
And if there is, it's any moment they send it to print, they could change it, right? Basically, what I'm saying is that this is kind of like the equivalent of we have everybody and their mother arguing over the coming September FOMC Fed funds pause or hike 25 or hawkishly pause for a 25 and then another 25 after that and whatever it is, right? What I'm saying is that why don't we also consider the September FOMC day at 2 p.m. Eastern? The Fed releases a statement with two words on it. No change. That's it. And then there was a no-show J-PAL press conference as reporters just wait there for hours and hours in front of empty mic stands. And then the reporters then, confused, they chase Jay Powell down on his way home for the day. And he just shrugs his shoulders and says, no comment on the no comment. And then he gets on his bicycle and he rides away into the D.C. sunset. That happening. Okay? Call it the FOMC minutes with Chinese characteristics. That scenario. In other words, to me, this is absolutely not a sell volatility event that as clarity wipes out implied volatility upon like some statement release out of the July Politburo meeting. Um, And by the way, the Politburo meeting starts on July 28th, which is July Bank of Japan policy date. So that following Monday to kick off August will likely be a good day for a long vol day. Okay, but bottom line is that when it comes to China, as I've always said, Look, if you want to analyze, if you want to put capital at risk of China, by all means do so. But understand and never ever forget the most fundamental core starting point for the vast majority of investors, particularly foreign institutional investors, seem to completely somehow forget or overlook. China is not a capitalist markets-based system, okay? Yeah, you could argue that neither is U.S., Eurozone, U.K., Japan, Australia, Korea, or whatever, and so on. Like any anyone else with a put option writing central bank that can't allow for any severe downside markets, God forbid. Fine, fair enough. But in China, I mean, it's not a secret. It's in the. It's called the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, you are not investing in capitalism, and it is branded in their name. This isn't a criticism of them. This is just very straight, forward, plain fact. So what that means is if your starting point is for, say, going long China equities because of attractive valuation multiples or some five-year DCF model, you've already lost. You don't even know that you're on a different planet. You're applying Western capitalist financial models to an entirely different economic and social structure. Investing or analyzing in China economically is far more of a political analyst role currently than it is like a markets and economics role, okay? And so if you're the chief China strategist at some big, too big to succeed bank, you better come from the world of like, you know, like the Ian Bremer types more so than like some fund manager. Why? Because the green and red blinking tickers are dependent upon what policy officials and their actions and their inactions and their decisions are. And those override so-called private sector market forces. Again, this is not like a conspiracy. It's in their name, the Chinese Communist Party. So you need to understand that, okay? And that is far more difficult to quantify or to model if not impossible to right to read like the the actions of a select few 
of very powerful and privileged, uh, you know, men at the top. I am never going to claim to be anywhere near some sort of expert in that field. I'm not, okay? But at least I know from the very basic square one level where to start, what questions to ask before all else. What system of government and economics is this? Capitalist or communist? And then if I get it wrong, then I'm wrong for the right reasons. But at least I know what sport I'm playing, right? China doesn't have to do anything due to markets or private sector or debt buildup or what have you. If their priorities aren't aligned with this, you know, notion of it's the economy stupid, their priorities might not be strictly the economy and only, right? Very well may be, but it very well may not be, and it very well may switch in and out of and to different, different degrees of, right? But it's not permanently on capitalist shareholder mode like the West is. So any calls being made by Wall Street clowns on what the PBOC and their officials will have to do in Q3 with triple R rate cuts and whatever, great. I hope you made that call based on understanding the backroom politics and reaction function and priorities of this brand new economic leadership. And as I said in previous episodes, forecasting macro data is hard enough. If you add in an element of a handful of dudes in black suits and white shirts and red ties who can make and flip decisions out of nowhere at any time out of China, out of Beijing, you better take a very nimble stance and be quick to adjust your framework as facts change. Otherwise, you can go and join Wall Street. All right. Thank you for listening to my rant. On behalf of Blockus Marrow, my name is Weston Nakamura. We will see you soon. Thanks. Bye.